Hello and welcome to Business Lines Pulse podcast that tunes into all things health and pharmaceuticals. I'm Jyoti Datta. Over the last 10 months, there's been this global call for a time-bound IP waiver to help get more COVID vaccines, for example, to more people. Presently, the developed world, for instance, has cornered a lion's share of the global vaccine supply. And uh, this proposal for, you know, the IP waiver, it was mooted by India and South Africa at the World Trade Organization. This was last year, but it's still making pretty slow progress. To decipher something as complex as this, we have with us today Lena Mengani, South Asia head with the Access Campaign of MSF or Medicines Sans Frontiere, also known as Doctors Without Borders. Thank you, Lena, for joining us. Thank you, Joe, for having us. So last week, Lena, you delivered, you know, MSF's intervention at the World Trade Organization and the WHO's, but as the World Health Organization's high-level dialogue on uh, expanding COVID vaccine manufacturing again to promote more equitable access. So how did that come about, and why was it important for MSF and you to make that uh, intervention? And you, especially, you make in your statement, you say as a person of color. So why why was that intervention important? So at the high level dialogue the WTO and the WHO had actually put together a very impressive list of funders health uh, stakeholders and of course pharmaceutical corporations and the CEOs so you had uh, pretty much in the entire community of global health and the pharmaceutical industry at the high level discussion MSF was uh, one out of three a public interest groups that was invited as a humanitarian organization and we chose to deliver that statement with, uh, highlighting the fact that you know MSF who's been treating covid and has been seeing the onslaught of covid in many developing countries we wanted to highlight the disparities in access in the context that we work so from seeing that you know about 1% of people have have got their doses in developing country versus you know 18 to 50 to 70% of the developed world and some middle income countries having access to their doses so we wanted to highlight these disparities we wanted to also highlight the problems that were occurring when we wanted to treat uh, covid-19 for example in india what uh, government and people faced were very high prices of drugs like lipozomal amitriptyline b tocilizumab and this actually put a huge burden on governments and people and we wanted to highlight that to the wto and stakeholders right and you have mentioned that in delhi i mean with the second wave uh, you know it was unprecedented what we started seeing in terms of oxygen and all the other shortages whether it was the black fungus drug and all the rest of it yeah so indeed uh, you know while we were highlighting I, i was speaking as msf i also wanted that as a survivor and as a person who volunteered during those three or four crucial weeks uh, starting from mid april right going right up to the end of may where not only just hospital beds and oxygen were in short supply drugs were in short supply and many of us from the treatment access movement who were volunteering were seeing that for example you know there was a disparity people could not afford tocilizumab or were not able to access the drug in severe cases and the black fungus situation was even worse because gilead's had a monopoly for a, almost a decade and a half 
and we just did not have enough doses in the country due to its monopoly and people were being underdosed for black fungus so it's essentially meant that something was which was a life threatening opportunistic infection we did not have enough supplies we were heavily dependent on a multinational corporation to give a million doses to india many of those doses did not arrive in time and many people lost their lives fighting black fungus so we felt that having worked on liposomal amptofericin b for leishmaniasis and advanced hiv we needed to highlight that gilead's monopoly on the drug was something that stood in the way of people's access to the drug right so you know the way um, you know most people have looked i don't think in in our common lives we even think of intellectual property so much it is seen as something in the realm of industry or researchers you know uh, innovators get rewarded for 20 years of exclusive rights and where they get uh, 20 years of their i mean they get rewarded for their research where they get 20 years exclusive rights to price and sell their products now um, this is probably the first time we are seeing it you know people impact our lives you've been working on access for i think about 20 years so you've probably been seeing this earlier with um, you know with hiv drugs with breast cancer drug trastuzumab with uh, you know with hepatitis c drugs of bevir so it's not just in the realm of science and researchers it also it comes when it comes down it comes down to affecting people and their um, access to to the drugs that that was illustrated this absolute what actually the intellectual property does is to take something that has been collectively developed um you know we know that governments have been funding uh, medicines uh, development and vaccines development for a long time we know that people volunteer in the clinical trials and they have the right to also determine what happens to to the outcomes of research and science so this you know privatization of science in the form of intellectual property has led to a grave impact on the pandemic so you can see this across the board right from the mrna vaccine to biological drugs which are being used to fight severe severe covid disease so the privatization of science today is something that perhaps people do not realize and it it is something that is fundamental to the quality of life that we lead in the developing world and in in some sense a lot of us who worked on hiv on hep c and tuberculosis and cancer realize that but i think it's become much more mainstream by south africa and india putting the waiver on the table saying wave intellectual property it's a pandemic it's an emergency if you do not wave intellectual property barriers when will you actually do it so i think this is this is not just a legal question that india and south africa have posed to the world they posed a very important ethical question uh, to to member states uh, who are who are members of the wto right and and the who chief sort of made an you know very powerful statement as well saying if not now when i mean when is it that uh, you know you're really going to use those wto you know the the levers that are given to you in terms of a public health emergency so yeah that's pretty much well brought out by all of you so the view from the other side is you know what big pharma says is that look we have waived royalty during the pandemic period there are voluntary licenses that are given astrazeneca and serum institute gilead and remdesivir merck eli lilly you know so voluntary licenses work or not what is your view on that so so we have to recognize the role that you know civil society and the trips waiver have played in 
obtaining a few voluntary licenses. So if you look at the most recent one, which is, uh, you know, a non-assert uh, declaration by Roche on tocilizumab. And we all know that today Hetero, for example, is working on tocilizumab in India. So non-assert for LMIC, it comes uh, from the fact that, you know, people, uh, the pharmaceutical industry has realized that, you know, they must give something because people are dying. And if they don't, they have the entire model of profiteering at stake through the waiver, the TRIPS waiver. And, and what the pharmaceutical industry fears is that if the waiver goes through for, for this pandemic, um, people are justified in asking for it for future public health needs. And I think to block the waiver, uh, industry has started to, you know, give out these handouts of voluntary licenses. What interestingly these voluntary licenses do, now if you look at the L.I. Lili Baritisinib, and I think very few people actually know about it, maybe the government of India perhaps has not looked at the Baritisinib voluntary license, maybe the patent office has not even asked for a copy, which is justified to do so, is that it only allows sale in the territory of India. So baritacinib, if it's required in Nepal, if it's required in, you know, Malaysia or Indonesia or, you know, Africa, um, NATCO, for example, who's producing the drug at a fraction of the cost of what L.I. Lilly is, will not be able to supply. So these voluntary licenses are flawed. They draw borders among people. They are nationalistic in the sense they... They sort of elicit a very nationalistic response from the Indian pharmaceutical industry who says, oh, yes, we like the voluntary licenses. Um, so in, in some sense, they undermine access and play into the profiteering model of the pharmaceutical industry. They are just not enough for the pandemic. Right. So what would you say uh, to the innovator company that says, look, we put in money uh, into research and we need to recoup, recoup those costs? Uh, so the, I think I, this is an ongoing debate about, you know, who owns science and the outcomes of science and who funds science at the end of the day. The riskiest part of research is usually in public labs. And we've seen that even in India, if you look at today, you know, uh, Favi Privavir, which, you know, is being sold extensively in, for, for COVID, um, you know, the public labs help, uh, you know, develop it. This is not only true in, in the developed countries, but in even in developing countries, a lot of uh, fundamental research, a lot of basic research, a lot of the early steps for drug development actually come from public labs. And what pharmaceutical industry is good at is privatizing it, taking something that the riskiest part was done in public labs and then privatizing it for its own profit. And it wants absolutely no regulation on it, whether it has been compulsory licensing or whether actually saying that, can you just tell us how much did you really spend on R&D? How much did you really spend on the clinical trial? How much is your cost of goods? Or how much is your cost of production? And while they want to name the price that they want to sell at and, and keep the monopolies, they are not willing to do what is required to do that, which is to provide the cost of goods, to provide the cost of raw materials, to provide the cost of production, to tell us how much uh, subsidies and tax uh, uh, waivers they've received and how much have they actually, down to the last dollar, spend on actually developing the drug. And in most cases, I have found in HIV and cancer that it comes from public labs. Right. Even this time, we see that discussion on you know, although companies have put out a lot of information, but when it still comes to 
how much a certain government, maybe how much Germany may have given to BioNTech or, or uh, you know, the Oxford support and all of that. Uh, there isn't much in public domain uh, for that instance. That's true. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, in, in COVID, it's 90-10. Uh, that means 90% of funding has actually come from public labs and, you know, taxpayers. Um, and, the, you know, less than 10% has come from the industry. So, you know, that basically means they are privatizing what we essentially own and we then end up paying twice in the United States or any other place, they end up paying twice. But in countries like India, this plays into, you know, racial and social divides, you know. So you can't keep an intellectual property system based on the exploitation of people of color, you know based on equity, inequity in developing countries. And that's why I highlighted the point about being a woman of color, because I feel that in the pandemic, women have borne the brunt of the pandemic, right? They have been at the receiving end of the pandemic in the hierarchy of rights. And what expensive treatment or a lack of vaccine does is take away the right to go to work, to be able to go back into their lives. So as a woman of color, I feel that the lack of equity in vaccines and the lack of equity in healthcare and medicines plays into gender, racial, social caste divides that we have in the developing world. And what, what I did not expect from the European Union, who's a champion of human rights, that they would not recognize this side of the intellectual property system. So many learnings from, you know, from this, the last, uh, what do you say, one and a half years or so, on yes. this side, you think governments should, you know, when they apportion money, also make sure that, you know, when the, the outcome side, so when it comes out, you also, you know, make sure you, you price it affordably, you make it more accessible and all of that. You think they need to tie in all of that into their funding agreements as well? Absolutely. I mean, I think perhaps, you know, um, India and ICMR are probably looking back at the Bharat Biotech Agreement and wondering whether they could have done better, you know, what they did this, this year, which is to, to provide the support to Bharat Biotech on clinical trials and other forms of technical support, whether they should have done that to more producers and not just Bharat Biotech. Could, they could have built a consortium around uh, the vaccine that, you know, co-vaccine. So I think all governments who are funding uh, R&D should think of multiple producers and creating competition because it works for them as procurers. It works for people because, you know, uh, the product is far more accessible. It's more available. You know, you don't have to jostle like today in Ghaziabad and, you know, in UP, we are all jostling for a vaccine jab. You know, it creates greater access by having more than one producer. And I think this is a learning, um, not just in the form of intellectual property, but how you draw up your contracts and how you forecast your need. What happened for developing countries was they, the benchmark that was put for developing countries that, you know, you just need to vaccinate your healthcare workers and your elderly and your vulnerable communities. While the developed countries are already thinking of vaccinating the entire population, you know, okay. um, I think... Global health actors made that mistake, but all of us together made that mistake that we didn't think that the pandemic would, would very quickly affect all of us and, and the economy and that everyone would need a jab, essentially. And maybe perhaps um, people are today wondering, you know, do they need to take a booster jab six months after mm -hmm. they've taken uh, the entire course? So 
we are in a situation where we need to think of scale we need to think of multiple producers and we need to think the way we write our contracts uh, everywhere not just in public labs but even um, the way sepi has been funding uh, vaccines and and uh, you know we, we really really need to rethink uh, access conditions within our contracts right absolutely um, you know that's a huge learning uh one point that you talk about multiple producers so now i hear this even from indian um you know companies that are developing vaccines now they say you know transfer of technology is easier said than done it takes many months three to four months if not more to bring another company up to speed then there are these 200 odd input materials that are that are to be sourced so are these legitimate concerns um you think i think there are legitimate concerns no doubt but my question is when what was your starting point starting point came to do all of the things you know figure out you know uh, increased um, supply of raw materials um, you know it, it, you know the starting point of saying we need more than one producer of say bharat biotech or today i would say we need more producers of covid shield you know and the jnj single dose when did we start thinking about that we started to think when only the second wave hit us in india right and and people around the world watched india go through an extremely big humanitarian crisis of a proportion that i think put many countries on the watch to start wondering whether you know they needed to absolutely scale up vaccination um and and in in that sense i think um we started uh, you know the global health community started late uh, people were celebrating the oxford vaccine deal um with serum institute and astrazeneca as if it would solve the world's problems and and i think what could have been done earlier i would not say would have offset the entire crisis but we would have been ahead of the pandemic and i think this is this is something that uh, you know a lot of policy makers uh, may be thinking today that you know was serum institute enough for india itself uh, forget about the developing world you know is for example um, you know a single producer of the jnj jab enough for india and and the developing world we need to think uh, multiple producers we need to think also of other uh, countries in the region and globally to start producing vaccines right what has msf's experience been with uh, you know the various deals that have happened on say trastuzumab or hepatitis c uh, either in india or or uh, you know any of the low and middle income countries are they getting better served by uh, voluntary licensing deals so uh, what really served uh, um, patients and our msf patients was uh, in, you know india had included these critical public health safeguards in 2005 um which even the current uh, you know political party which is in power in india had also supported these public health safeguards which were section 3d against evergreening and you know the right to challenge patent claims before they are granted when civil society started to challenge for example gilead's uh, patent claims on sofisbuvir companies were quick to react they realized that people uh, wanted these drugs and um, rather than losing they claims at the patent office they chose to issue these voluntary licenses so really what's worked for people in developing countries is what i would say has been an instrumental part of india's law which is you know the the provisions on evergreening and the right to for people to to file patent claims uh, challenges to patent claims 
the same rights were not given on compulsory licensing. And you can just see that compulsory licenses after the grant of the patent have been very, I mean, there's just a single, single compulsory license. So in our experience, voluntary licenses are a reaction to people's pressure. So in that sense, voluntary licenses are poor quality in the absence of people's pressure. So how do you, if, if bilateral and voluntary licenses or licenses through MPP are to work, then we need a better regulatory framework. We need transparency. We need to see what's in, what are the terms and conditions. And we definitely need to stop excluding very high burden countries. In hepatitis C, what we, what we saw, that countries with very high burden of hepatitis C were excluded from voluntary licenses. So we saw in India, we, as MSF, we could treat people. In Pakistan, we could treat people with generic, affordable generic hepatitis C medicines. But in cases like Ukraine and Armenia, we faced, uh, we faced patent barriers and we had to challenge those to get access. So I just wanted to highlight that voluntary licenses are not, do not smell of roses as, as many people like to, you know, in the industry or government like to highlight them as, yeah. Your birds are competing with you, I think, here in the backdrop. Yes, and there's, I'm lucky that the mena has not come. She's quite the... <laughs> right. Yeah. So I have one final question. So now we have, uh, you know, uh, America is on board. The Biden administration has said that it's supporting the IP uh, waiver proposal for vaccines. But on the other side of the divide is the European Union and other powerful uh, countries. So... Is this deadlock likely to be resolved soon? And there's one thing, America is on board as far as vaccines are concerned, but the India and the South Africa proposal is for all COVID tools. So whether it's diagnostics or medicines, et cetera. So, uh, you know, how, how, what do you see as the way forward from that? So the way forward, uh, so let's start with the most basic part, which is the start of the negotiations, which the European Commission has been sort of delaying first by uh, refusing to, to allow the start of the negotiations by coming on the table, then putting a proposal on compulsory licensing, which, you know, those provisions already exist in the TRIPS agreement. Uh, people have pointed out the limitations of, of slow moving compulsory licensing mechanisms. So with the European Commission, the strategy for them is pretty clear, is that they feel uh, that the proposal is uh, not important, that it's not important to support for greater access uh, for the developing world. And they want to define the terms and conditions for, you know, what the response to the TRIPS waiver will be. And I think this is where, you know, people in developing countries and MSF greatly differs. I think the proposal comes from countries worst affected by the pandemic, including India and South Africa. And, you know, the European Commission should allow developing country proposals to move forward and, uh, and, and to have it say in the negotiations rather than prevent the start of the negotiations. I don't think so many people realize that majority of people in the European Union have gone on holiday, a summer break, while you know, millions of people are dying in the developing world as we speak, even in Africa. So it is absolutely unconscionable that you know, they have decided to take a summer break while the negotiations should have been ongoing. The WTO GD has been appealing for uh, the early start of the negotiations in August, and we feel that uh, the negotiations should not be delayed. 
However, I feel that the European Commission is making a tactical mistake, uh, Jyoti, because by letting the, the waiver is on the table, it cannot be taken away. It is causing a public debate. It has, for example, led to a greater support for the mRNA hub being set up in South Africa. We've seen BioNTech offer a fill and finish agreement to uh, BioVac. There's more pressure on pharma industry to do more. We've seen Roche um, uh, issue uh, a non-assert for tocilizumab. So I feel that you know the waiver should remain on the table. India should not withdraw from the proposal and should continue to provide the highest level of political support to the waiver. The waiver is working in terms of putting pressure on the pharmaceutical industry and developed countries to do more for the pandemic. As, as to the United States, I think uh, we all know that the United States is now funding the discovery and, and development of new oral drugs for COVID-19 pretty much on the lines of, say, direct acting antivirals for hep C. So to, you know, to say that the waiver should be restricted to vaccines uh, and is, is uh, basically, I think, uh, non-acceptable. As treatment providers, we will not accept a deal that leaves out treatment for patients. On that forceful note, Nina, we'll come to an end to this uh, interaction. And from the yeah. business line team and myself, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you.